The sustainable care team, led by Professor Sue Yendel at the University of Sheffield, is exploring how care arrangements currently in crisis in parts of the UK can be made sustainable and deliver wellbeing outcomes. We aim to support policy and practice actors and scholars to conceptualise sustainability in care as an issue of rights, values, ethics and justice, as well as of resource distribution. Our Care Matters series includes publications, podcasts and blogs from our team and others working towards sustainable care. Welcome to the Care Matters podcast. My name's Patrick Hall. Um, I'm a research fellow at the University of Birmingham, and my work mainly focuses on comparing the social care systems that have emerged in the UK since uh, the devolution settlements at the end of the 1990s. And I'm interested in the development and evolution of adult social care systems, and in particular at the moment thinking about how our experiences of going through this crisis over the last few years um, will influence the systems that emerge in in the coming decades. Um, And here with me, I've got a really exciting group of people to talk about this. So I'll, I'll let you introduce yourselves. Tim, if you want to go first. Yeah, hello. So I'm, I'm Tim Parkin. I'm a senior policy advisor at uh, TLAP, Think Local Act Personal Partnership, and uh, we're a national partnership that uh, promotes personalisation in, in all its aspects. Hi, I'm Dave James. I'm head of adult social care policy at the Care Quality Commission, which is the regulator of health and social care in England. Hi, uh, I'm Kate Sibthorpe. I'm a member of the National Co-Production Advisory Group and we work alongside uh, Think Local Act Personal um, so that they co-produce everything they do. I'm a mum to a young woman with learning disabilities and autism, so we've been drawing on social care services for, gosh, nearly 30 years now. I, I suppose if we could kind of just start with some reflections on what's happened over the past few years. Of course, you know, there are some really stark facts about um, what's happened in the system and some huge ways in which uh, the crisis has magnified the problems that exist in the social care system. Um, We've had, you know, a huge amount of excess deaths, particularly in care homes. I think the latest figures are something like 35,000 excess deaths with kind of a smaller number in with people receiving uh, home care. And I think the, the, the problems in social care around means testing, huge costs that people can end up paying, the unmet need that exists in the system, quality, difficulties with workforce, and a kind of sense of real disjointedness about the system have all been magnified by what's gone on over the last few years. And yet, you know, there are some real lessons, I think, from what's happened, both in terms of the way in which communities and families have responded to the needs that they've seen and the kind of great outpouring of kindness and attention, care and volunteering that we've seen in communities. You know, it's, it's, it really, really has given me great cheer 
during this crisis um, to think that people still really care for their neighbours, still really care for people who are suffering and on the margins of communities. So that's that's really what we want to start with today. You know, I, I think, um, Dave, could you start by kind of just giving me maybe a, a lesson that you think that we can learn from uh, from this crisis? I think I think building on what you're saying there, Patrick, about how 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 various players have, have pulled together. So it's as well as people on that ground level helping one another. I think the crisis has uh, the pandemic has probably accelerated some overdue change in terms of how well social care, healthcare, all the various kind of parts that sit within each interrelate and, and, and collaborate. I think we've probably jumped forward maybe three, four, five years in some aspects. So in terms of how we how we pull resources, how information is shared, virtual GP consultations in care homes, so, so therefore, kind of increased increased access to to GPs potentially. So, I think there's there's lots to learn from as as the dust hopefully starts to settle and we can we can take these uh, improvements uh, forward. Kate, what what's your experience been like over the last few years with the system? Well, thinking about my experience of of COVID, what it brought home to me is how very fragile our systems are and just you know at an individual level at a family level you know we had times when we struggled so I live with my partner and we both support our daughter and you know when we're both poorly there isn't really anybody around we don't have any close family and you know what you talked about Patrick about communities stepping up and showing that they care for each other that was really important to me we had a street WhatsApp group set up as a brand new thing by people I'd never met before. And, you know, when we were poorly, when we were isolating, it was very reassuring to know that there were people out there who would, you know, go to the shops for us um, and so on. And so for me, one of the lessons the system needs to learn is how to sort of not necessarily harness that, but how to foster those natural organic ways of communities supporting each other and developing friendships and relationships between neighbors oh that's that's really really interesting i think we'll yeah we'll get into some of the mechanics of how the system might do that and actually you know those are the two kind of sides maybe you know we've we've got kind of you know thinking about how you know the the structure of the system and the kind of formal organizations work together and the the kind of spontaneous way in which people organize to look after each other and maybe today's conversation can be about how you know we can learn those we can think about those things and how we get them to to work together so like you said Kate to get you know the the formal system to facilitate that community power and relationships Tim what do you think uh, about that yeah, I mean, I think, you know, that I think is one of the sort of key, a key moment, if you like. I mean, as things do, um, you know, obviously at that time, the immediate peril of the crisis, lots of people, uh, you know, social isolation, lockdown, people on furlough. So, uh, it was, you know, as we move out of that, hopefully, things are going to change. But uh, I think um, there's a couple of issues that I see in relation to that. One is 
it's quite a tricky balance between at one end of the, the extreme, the local state or the state saying, well, that's great. The, the community is now looking out for each other. We can step back because we're very short on resources, leaving people effectively to get on with it to a, another extreme. And these are sort of to make the point. I mean, no one's at like, these positions, I don't think, but around, uh, well, we're going to have to we're going to have to make sure everyone's uh, CRB checked, and we need a bit of process here. We need some checking. So, and, and you end up or could end up with sort of effectively suppressing it or or killing it. So, I think negotiating a, a line through those uh, positions, I think, is, is is a key challenge and opportunity. The the other issue that comes to my mind is that I think some of the narrative that we've seen at certainly a national government level uh, around protecting the vulnerable, a, a pretty limited view of what social care is. I mean, not to understate the, the terrible toll and experience of people living and working in care homes and families, but it, it kind of is sort of, it's kind of slightly distilled social care to a view around vulnerable, needy people, mainly older people living in care homes. So that, that narrative is pretty limited. And and if we imply that, relate that to that sort of community context, if you like, there is, I think, a risk of that sort of kind of gift model being perpetuated. So it's a case where we're now looking after these poor, needy folk uh, down our road. And that's not to in any way detract, detract from that sense of wanting to do good. But I think there is a risk that we, we, we just transport the gift model into the street. Mm, that's really interesting. Um, what what role do you think the state and in particular regulation can have in kind of developing a system that can you know be more be more effective at delivering care, but also kind of facilitating and helping people to to care for one another in communities, Dave? Yeah, it's a good it's a good question. I was kind of pondering that as as Tim was speaking. I mean, I think Tim's absolutely right. You can get regulation wrong and it, it can be a barrier you can kind of over over regulate and I'm, I'm i'm mindful of the what's been happening over recent years down in the southwest in particular with the kind of the micro providers so-called where there's real, real kind of really making the most of of the communities down there and and, um, and people getting together to help people that need it and there's there's a danger that that can kind of trip into full-scale regulation and, and we've been really keen to work with uh, with our partners uh, who are active in that area to, just to try and work out how we avoid that. But at the same time, you know, what, what kind of protections do we need? So I suppose, how, how do you make sure regulation isn't a barrier to uh, to genuine kind of innovation and community spirit? And on the other hand, is regulation to some extent, thinking about the workforce issues, regulation is is actually helpful and a helpful kind of so professional re- regulation and, and how that actually helps to... Uh, professionalize the workforce which is of course a skilled workforce regulation can flipping it on its head be potentially something that that gives gives the sector a leg up i guess uh, in that sense there's probably a broader point as well about the changing role of the regulator moving away from just providers via kind of provider collaboratives all the way through to looking at local authorities and and integrated care systems do you, do you think that the, the CQC's kind of changed focus onto systems? I mean, obviously, it's kind of carried on in its traditional role, but that that kind of foreshadows something which which might be happening in the system and the role of the regulator, kind of thinking about its role not just as with individual providers, but then with a kind of a broad thinking about mm. the function of a broader system 
as Tim said, kind of not narrowly defining what social care is, but thinking about it as a kind of a complex and broad system, which include which includes kind of families, informal care and uh, community care. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, across health and, so, and social care, really, uh, but we've, we've been thinking along those terms for the last few years and certainly since we did our uh, our local systems reviews where we looked at how older people moved through the system. So you'll increasingly hear more from us on that and uh, and what we're doing at the moment is to try to work out what groundwork we need to put in place to make sure that all the various bits of what we do, because we are quite a large complex organisation, how does that all fit together in a way that means you can you can kind of slice and dice what we know and what we learn in different ways, different pathways uh, and in particular you know, what's the What's the interface between social care and health and back again? And then and then what's slightly outside of our circle, but still absolutely essential that we understand, which I think probably gets us into the space of where we're looking at a local authority level or, or a wider system level. How are people supported? Uh, and what does good look like? And, and how can you encourage a, a shared sense of endeavor without necessarily having the regulatory stick uh, it's actually more about how do you convene the right kind of conversations? How do you build that that sense of shared endeavour, I think? I'm just kind of thinking about something that Tim said about, you know, you've got, you know, that it isn't it wasn't just kind of a spontaneous outpouring, but also things came together for people to be more visible in their communities, I suppose, more people working from home, people furloughed. Um, so in that sense, there's a danger that we kind of go back back to what we had before, you know, where people maybe go back to the office and aren't as engaged in their communities and maybe people can't rely as heavily on 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 that kind of um that organization that Kate was talking about so i guess the challenge is how do, how do we kind of prevent that from happening i think that's probably a a wider it's a wider policy challenge isn't it you know it's actually engaging with our culture of work as well you know it's thinking about you know, how do we stay engaged if we if we were engaged during during the pandemic? You know, and how do we fit in our concern for and care for others? You know, around our working lives. Kate, do do you feel like that community that was there for you is in danger of kind of disappearing as we kind of go back to normal? I'm doing the, I'm doing the air quotes, but obviously no one can see me do that. Yeah, I do. Th- I do think that as people go back to work, there's a risk that those networks won't be as strong. But I, like, I hope our street WhatsApp group is there forever now, and so I, I'm I'm assuming that we'll always be able to to use that. And I'm I'm hoping we'll actually have some sort of street party to celebrate when we finish COVID and actually get to meet everybody face to face. And other things have set up because of COVID. So down the road, a couple of neighbours have set up a toiletries bank for people. And, um, you know, that's engaged people like my daughter are now working to support the toiletries bank. So things have have sort of definitely come out of it. For me, and it is in uh, Making It Real in one of our statements, there's something around local authorities and CCGs investing in um, community groups not necessarily by putting money in but doing things like maybe creating a space where people can just come together and then see what emerges or you know sharing opportunities to learn skills you know so that they can go on and and do things as, as new groups 
I think often in communities, it's it's actually hard to have a place to meet. It's almost like the starting point often. And I would really like to see organisations sort of helping create those spaces. And then I think some magic might emerge. Tim, are there any good examples of that of that happening in, in local authorities that you're working with in, in uh, think Local Act Personal? Well, um, I'm not so sure we've seen examples of magic, but we've certainly seen some uh, examples of some positive responses from councils uh, in, in response to COVID. Um, and, and we've documented them in a report I'll just talk about a little bit more in a second but um so in slough by way of example the council kept their co-production going with their local groups uh, particularly supporting two-way communication with community leaders from black asian and ethnic minority groups which make up a high percentage of the population there were some really good examples of not just communication and advice but support uh, on the ground in medway the, the council worked closely with direct payment holders to provide information, reassurance, advice and support on, a, on an individual basis and, and let people use their direct payments more flexibly uh, to help people stay safe uh, and well. Some would say, we would certainly say that that flexibility was the intention of uh, direct payments all along. So it was a case of getting back to the roots of those uh, direct payments. Leeds, uh, another example, Leeds Council, they, they gave some of their, their home care providers greater freedom to adjust the support they were giving to people without having to go back and ask the permission of a social worker every time they wanted to change uh, anything. Uh, and they also work very closely with the voluntary community and social enterprise sector and community groups to, to coordinate the, uh, the, a community uh, response. Uh, some of our members uh, of TLAP's National Co-Production Advisory Group, so they're people with lived experience of care and support, uh, they were very active in their localities. So one example, one, one of our members in Kent, through his membership of the Learning Disability Partnership Board, championed and advocated the, uh, the case for people with learning disability to get vaccinated more quickly than they were uh, in Kent. So his voice was, um, was a loud voice and, and acted upon. So we have seen some encouraging behaviours, which we think can um, inspire and inform how social care uh, is developed. We did some work in the early phases of trying to figure out the impacts of COVID on uh, um, on people accessing using care and support, drawing on care and support, and that gave that very mixed picture of some people not faring very well with the support that they got, the communication, the advice. Um, others uh, where councils particularly were more proactive that was a different story and we've done a bit of thinking and analysis since then and we published that in a, in a report uh, the three r's of social care reform because we think there are some lessons that point towards a, a better future for social care and, and that includes a range of case studies mainly from councils where the response was 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 positive and and, and should you know help in the future um, and we've kind of looked at it through the lens of these three R's around a more positive sort of managed and constructive approach to risk taking. And we, and we particularly looked at that through direct payment holders. Uh, and, and it is important in these discussions to remember that as an important cohort. It's not the sum total of 
people, but certainly in the in the first phase of the national response, direct payment holders felt pretty invisible. Uh, so that's a legacy that we need to keep hold of. I think that direct payment holders and people who employ their own personal assistants are an important part of the social care fabric and, and in a way I would say should be supported to grow. The, the second one about positive, uh, respectful relationships. I mean, they're all very basic human sort of attitudes and behaviours, but we saw some of that, particularly in relation to work with with providers, a bit of saying, well, we haven't really got the time uh, now. So you just do what you think's in the best interest of the people that you're supporting within some, some limits. And then we saw that and what we've been spending a little time talking about, that reciprocity between communities and neighbours looking out for, for one another. And, and sort of under, underlining all of that, or wrapping it all up, is, a, is that notion of trust, which is a sort of kind of very easy to say, but it's, and, but it's actually quite an important, I think, element. So while we talk about systems and governance and structures, actually I think some of the more important things are these softer uh, sides. The other thing that we found, and this doesn't stand the test of sort of the high gold standard of research, but uh, our our impression is that those places, those councils that kept their co-production going or restarted it after, you know, sort of responding to the immediate emergency, people in those areas felt better supported. uh, And, you know, I think that that's a real lesson that um, to ramp up or sustain that co-production with people uh, and communities and maybe the community aspect means now we're we're not just wanting to talk and engage with people who are actually actually drawing on care and support we want to broaden that to have a conversation in those neighborhoods in those local areas and in those places it does bring us to think kind of thinking about what what the future might hold for the system um and you know any kind of set of proposed reforms that might be coming about and we've you know we're just reading this i was just reading this morning that apparently there's some kind of agreement on a set of tax changes that you know might underpin social care funding reform now i i I think you know that's that's good news and you know i'm i'm interested in how we might break the deadlock in terms of long-term funding for the for the system but I, I do think that there's a danger that you know we kind of that again you know as as tim pointed out that you know when when we're talking about kind of funding for the system we're just and and dave you said this as well you know that we're just talking about people in care homes and and, and as you know vital and important as that is you know actually if we just kind of look at that as the kind of technocratic issue to fix you know, then we don't kind of think about kind of ongoing um, kind of iterative um, engagement with the system as the important thing. Because uh, so on one side, you've got this definition of, of social care reform as kind of simply a, a kind of economic issue around kind of tax and, and spend. And, uh, and then on the other hand, you know, you might, you know, think about social care reform as kind of this establishment of a a national care service, which is kind of exactly parallel to the NHS, a kind of more heavy-handed regulation, more inspection, all of all of that sort of thing. And, and there's a danger that those are the kind of two dominant discourses when we think about adult social care reform. Do you think, Dave? Because you're, you're probably closer to some of this these discussions than than any of us, Dave. Um, you know, what do you think that it, the government's proposals? will be wider than that and you know what what do you think that you know the system and people that are involved and interested in adult social care can do to try and influence what it what it might look like 
I'm not sure I have much of an inside <laughs> track on that, but I, I think you're absolutely right, Patrick, about it, it kind of gets into, so what, what kind of houses should we be building? You know, what, what, where will people be living as, as, as we, as we, as we all age? Um, what does that mean for mar- marrying up with the in- increasing levels of need that, that people would have? I, I'm not sure that this current round of thinking, if it does indeed move on, will, will be, uh, personally speaking, will be as ambitious as that. I, I imagine it would be perhaps slightly more mechanical and, and financially focused. But I hope that's the start of of the conversation and that it plays out. You know, as I say in that way you just you just describing there, it's it's this is part of a part of our society, isn't it? And how, how do we want to live? Where do we want to live? Of course, technology plays a role in that as well. So it's it's really yeah, panning panning out a little bit and and, and seeing it as as part of a, a part of a, a bigger piece. I actually wanted to kind of um, to double back with you actually about something you said about, you know, the systems working closer mm. together mm. and about how, you know, and about actually the use of technology. And I think, you know, I think something that we've, yeah, I think technology has been a big part of our experience of, of, um, of the pandemic. You know, we, we were talking before we started recording about, you know, the strangeness of having to look at yourself all day on, on a computer screen and kind of getting a bit sick of your own voice. And, um, you know, I think we've seen the kind of the good aspects of technology, but also the kind of real limitations of it as well. And, and our, our need for kind of real connection with it, with each other, which, which is outside of that technology. Could you just give me some reflections on kind of what you think about technology and how, how it might help systems to work together? to kind of be more integrated, to kind of put the person at the centre, but also, you know, also thinking about what the, what the limits are of that and how do we not kind of over-promise over and, and over-rely on technology? I suppose the first thing that comes to mind is going back to the, um, the kind of the interface really between, between health and social care and how we need to do better at, at how kind of having how we share records how, you know people not having to tell their story over and over again to, to the gp to uh you know to to to, to the care home to, to whoever it might be it's, it's how do we safely and a mindful of uh, people's um uh, you know the, the privacy of their, their of their data if you like but how do we just actually remove some of these barriers about um people's records so that actually it's that their journey through the system is is facilitated. I guess that's the kind of mechanical part of the answer. But it's also, this also might be quite a mechanical way of looking at it, but is it still okay, for instance, for for a care service, say a residential care service, to to not have Wi-Fi, for people to not be able to speak to loved ones wherever they might live um, using an iPad? Is Is that actually, are we now reached a new consensus of what a minimum standard is, I guess, around... Um, access to technology, and I suspect we have, and there might there might be something for for us to do to do in terms of articulating that consensus and, and kind of enshrining that in our expectations. Kate, can you talk a bit about your experiences using technology during the pandemic and during lockdowns? You know, and, and ways in which it's uh, helped you. You talked about WhatsApp earlier. What what are your reflections on using technology? Do you you know are you are you fed up of it? like everyone else or or um do you feel like this is a this is a good new normal i think 
all the stuff we've been doing virtually has been amazing because it has enabled us to keep going. And um, when you think about organisations creating space for people to get together and to facilitate co-production, then Zoom meetings have been fantastic and there's been some really good work happening in places like Leicester and Essex and Shropshire where I, I would say co-production is thriving more now than, than maybe at the start of um, the pandemic. There have been downsides for us in that where services for people with learning disabilities, you know, again, some of them have done really well at putting stuff out online for people to join in with. But for some people like my daughter, it just isn't accessible. She would never be able to relate. She can't relate to um, a Zoom session. So, you know, I'm, we're desperately waiting for some, you know, one of the drop-ins she goes to, to start to open up again. And um, so she can get back and be with her friends face to face. Mm. Is, there, is there a danger you think that, you know, we, we end up, organisations can end up kind of relying on doing things virtually so that they're, they're offering less of that kind of face-to-face -face contact for, for, for disabled people? Possibly, possibly, yes. But maybe we need a sort of hybrid approach where the advantages of, of technologies, you can get far more people together from, you know, all over an area. You know, it's much harder to sometimes bring bring a group of people together in person. But um, for me, all the Zoom meetings and so on, they've been, they're easier when you knew people before, so you've already got an established relationship. And if you're trying to connect to people you've not met before, I think that's harder. So I would still want to see some sort of face-to-face um, -face connection, albeit that it might be a bit reduced. Tim, I suppose I, I wanted to um, ask you about making it real and and you know the progress that making it real's made around the country. Could you could you tell us a bit about what making it real is and you know how how we might use it to to build a, a new system and how it might change um, maybe given you know what we've been talking about today. Uh, yeah, though I, I I will defer to Kate at certain points. Oh, so I'll start, and uh, Kate will fill in the gaps. So um, I mean, it's as a as a sort of a thing. It's been around uh, for over ten years, and and we it was revised uh, around about uh, three years ago. So what it is 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 essentially a slim bound document that sets out what good personalised care and support looks like from the perspective of people, people drawing on care and support, people accessing services. Uh, and it's uh, written through a series of I statements uh, and uh, then linked to a number of we statements, which really sets out what organisations need to be thinking about uh, in order to sort of breathe life into those I statements to make them, to make them real for uh, people, I suppose. Uh, it, I think uh, it, it's, it, it's some sort of characteristics about it. It's deliberately generic in the sense that we see it has relevance to, to all, uh, across the sectors: social care, health, housing, and other public services. Because this is about supporting people and enabling people to have a life, not a specific set of services. And we think it, you know, has application. You know, whether you're an older person with dementia or or whether you're a, a, a younger person with autism. So it's, it's sort of kind of all age, all, all groups. And underpinned by that notion of 
co-production, which we've spoken about earlier in this conversation around that's how you really get to sort of shine a light on the existing services or support uh, and find a way through co-production of of um, in, improving them. In terms of the sort of where it is in the landscape, if you like, I think it's got pretty good recognition at the national level uh, uh, amongst the sort of key national organisations that are part of the social care world. Um, so you, you'll quite often see it now in policy documents reference to the making it real statements. Occasionally people make their own statements up, which is another thing to discuss possibly later on. But um, so it's got, um, I think, good recognition at the national uh, level. And uh, we see it's got really good potential, uh, not because it's a slim bound document, but as a, as a, as a, as a, as a way of really beginning to support and drive change. And I'm sure Dave will have something to say around the Care Quality Commission perspective, but I would encourage you to move to Kate so that she can add to that um, account. Yeah, I think um, there's been some really good work happening around making it real recently um, in some local authorities. So, well, the three I mentioned before, so Essex, Leicester and Shropshire, They've, they're all really embracing making it real and using it to have conversations with people who draw on their services to figure out how they can do things better. And some of them have you know, been really responsive and started to make changes immediately. And others are sort of thinking more long term. But the way they're using it, so a couple of them have got what they call making it real boards. And so they'll be, I, I guess, taking a whole authority approach and applying the statements to lots of different strands of work. So bearing in mind, it's all about um, person-centered care and support. I mean, Leicester were fabulous. They've asked, um, they asked all their teams to come up with um, a statement that particularly resonated with them and to think about what they could do against that statement. And they've also asked their staff individually to adopt a making it real statement. So they're, they're sort of really using it. And I think for me, the, the, the thing about it is to use it to have those conversations with people. And it works whether you're one-to-one -one doing a, a care assessment with somebody or whether you're thinking about a service like the direct payment service or you're thinking strategically about your carer strategy. It just applies at so many different levels. Um, and because the statements are generic, you can contextualise them where, where you are and in what you're doing. And so for me, it's just really useful, really adaptable and just a great tool for thinking about things with people. And when we talk about co-production, it's it obviously is about people with people who access services. But also, it's, I think it's really important to talk to people who are working face to face with people because they really know what what's actually happening in real life for people. Yeah, just, just to add to that, if I may, because I think it's, it's relevant, it's, there's a process which you can sign up to make it real, and it's a pretty simple process. You just need to, to demonstrate how you're going to use it to improve uh, support and services. And, and, and very recently, we've had two regional ADAS branches, West Midlands and East England, uh, only this week sign up. And, and, and the reason I, I think that's potentially significant, because if we're talking at scale uh, across the system, which I think we are, I think it's a really um, 
you know, a good sign that because uh, no one's, you know, made these guys uh, sign up. They want to do it as a way, as a catalyst to drive improvement. And I'm thinking particularly now as we, we move into the world of integrated care systems and those huge footprints as to the potential that, 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 that there may lie therein. Brilliant. Thanks. Dave, we talked earlier about kind of the, the trajectory of the CQC toward that kind of um, systems focus, you know, is, is um, making it real a kind of tool that you, you might use in, 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 in that focus and that, that kind of way of working? Yes, absolutely. I mean, across, across everything we do, you know, we do need to work out how we can use it, but, but our ambition within CQC is, is yes, to absolutely use making it real where we can to be the single view of quality, essentially across health and social care provider regulation, across local authority assurance and across ICS assurance, as, as undefined as our roles in local authorities and ICSs current years. Our ambition is is to use making it real because it. it, it I mean, I, I, I'm trying to hold back my uh, my fanboy speak here, but I've I've been passionate about trying to trying to push this forward in whatever way I I can over the last probably three years or so, following on from from the Quality Matters Initiative in social care, where we perhaps thought as a set of partners that it was a great organising principle and, and a way of overlaying what. What all the local authorities are doing in terms of their quality frameworks, what 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 we do as a regulator, what local health watch might do, a way of making sense of that patchwork of of questions and standards and information requirements and and all that noise um, that can so easily kind of grow and be generated. But where I think we're getting to now is is even better than that. And actually, within the uh, uh, the, the leadership at CQC, a real ambition that as we as we look to implement our next strategy which we've just published with a key focus of that being on people's experiences that actually making it real is is the key tool to unlocking all of that and if at the end of the day to talk like a footballer for a moment at the end of the day all of this is about making sure people live happier healthier more fulfilling lives so surely you start you start from that articulation and you work back and of course you get into detail of course you get into well, what does that we statement mean for an ICS versus what does it mean for a home care agency or personal assistant or whatever it might be? But actually, the, the statement is still true and the ambition should still be true of, of what of what people have said they expect. And I think that's the other thing to say is it's you know people like me shouldn't be shouldn't be drafting these things at all. Um, uh, you know, let's 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 use what people have said and what, what they expect of course what, what better could there be so so we're exploring now how we can take that forward how how we can break down the barriers and the complexities in our regulation so that it's fit for our future role but really more importantly just means that what we do makes sense makes sense to people and one of the ways i kind of bring this to life when i talk to people is so at the moment cqc's health and social care frameworks take 70 pages to describe our various ratings descriptors um if you use making it real you can do that in you know probably 30 statements so i don't think we're currently can't quite see how we could use all of making it real in a way that would work across everything that we do but there is a core set that we that we think we could use and just imagine if that was on a poster so you know we have our five key questions that, that the whole regulated system at least needs to needs to 
pay attention to, safe, effective, caring, responsive and well-led care. Just imagine if under that you're sitting waiting to go to your GP and you actually see a lot of we statements and that tells you exactly what you should expect. And you come out of that consultation and think, I didn't get that. And actually, that's actually a legal requirement as well as being a, a nice thing to have. So at the moment, I, I don't think we're there in terms of the public being truly empowered. And I also think this is another way of, of actually bringing the social care workforce and the healthcare workforce in as well, because who of those people has time to read through 70 plus pages and 335 key lines of inquiry and all the rest of it that has built up over the last few years. But I'm fairly sure that the language of making it real just cuts through all that so that they can understand what part they play and, and, and demystifies the role of the regulator, I think, and gets us all onto the same page. And back to my earlier point, fixes some of those mechanical headaches as well, I think, about about duplicated information and 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 as not making the best use of the data that's there. It's it's um yeah, it's a really positive step. And I'm I'm just so pleased that CQC are kind of grasping it and uh will continue to work with our partners and, and particularly with Think Local Act Personal to see exactly how we can do this and how we can how we can take it forward. So I'm very excited. You might have picked that up in my uh, answer there. <laughs> Well, I, I think, you know, it, it, it's really good to kind of catch up with you guys because I think, you know, it, we've been through such a kind of deep and tragic time, really. You know, a lot of people have lost people close to them and it, it can feel very negative. But I think there's, a, there is, there's some real optimism among people that want to see a better adult social care and social care systems across the UK and I think that's that's um, you know it, it gives us the energy to kind of go forward and 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 keep working towards that. It might be worth talking a bit about inequality, mm. um, because for me, one of the key things that has come out of COVID is the inequalities in our systems and in society. So I think Patrick, earlier on, you talked about excess deaths in care homes. And I think learning disability, learning disabled people have been eight times more likely to die from COVID. And certainly earlier on in the epidemic, people were saying that uh, people from black and minority ethnic communities were more likely to get COVID and to die from it. And so I, I think that's a sort of stark reality that's come to the fore through COVID. And um some, so somehow, for me, the system's got to take that on board and, and deal with it. I saw a quote from John O'Brien on Twitter the other day, uh, which I think systems should should take pay heed to, uh, which was when people not used to speaking out are heard by people not used to listening, then real change can be made. So for me, the system needs to really start listening to those people that we we don't reach. You know, it's not, they're there, let's go find them, let's go talk to them and, and make a difference. And I, I just, like some, some of what happened in COVID was shocking, like the do not resuscitate around people with learning disabilities. You know, it shows how as a society we value different people. Um, and it's not good news, is it? No, I don't have much to add there. I think that's, yeah, I think that's really, really powerful, Kate. So I, I don't think there's much more to say than just to say thank you all so much for your time today. And yeah, hopefully next time we 
get to catch up, we can do it in person and I can uh, we can make a brew 